Method and Madness is a true crime podcast and contains descriptions of violence. Listener discretion is advised. All witnesses, persons of interest, and or suspects are considered innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. In a town of 600, someone knows something. This is Method and Madness, Episode 57, Murdered, Kristen O'Connell, Part 2. I'm your host, Dawn Gandhi. Walking the route that Kristen walked that night, the golden buck is behind me, and so is the trailer where she was staying with Jim Vermeersh. Previously on Method and Madness. She was just a real sweetheart. Everybody loved Kristen. She loved, loved to laugh, and it was her laugh was contagious. I mean, when she laughed, everybody kind of joined in and and just she would just sit down and talk about anything and everything and wasn't in a hurry as far as she really kind of listened to people and you know gave her um thoughts about different subjects and things like that if she wanted to be her friend she didn't care if you didn't want to be her friend she'd make you her friend (laughs) you know because she was just impossible not to like she was beautiful she had long brown hair you know beautiful eyes just a an amazing way about her but like i said it didn't matter if you didn't want to be her friend you would end up being her friend i vowed that after she was found there that i would never rest never until i find out who did this to her and who killed her. Twenty-year-old Minnesota girl and college student Kristen O'Connell had visited Captiva Island in Florida for spring break in 1985. There, she met a young man named Jim Vermeersh, and the two headed off. After maintaining a long-distance friendship for five months, Kristen traveled to Ovid, New York, to spend time with Jim at his home. But at the last minute, he called to tell her he had moved out and was staying in a trailer nearby. It was mid-August. While there for only a few days, Kristen called home from a payphone at Ovid's bar and restaurant, The Golden Buck. She told her mom she was cutting her trip short. The details of why weren't clear at the time, but Phyllis O'Connell got the sense that something wasn't right. It was also during this call that Kristen expressed her shock that a bartender she'd been acquainted with on spring break and who had apparently run over someone on his way into work down on Captiva Island was now tending bar just a few feet away from her. That night... Kristen left Jim's trailer and took a walk. She never returned. At least one person from the trailer 
was out looking for Kristen when they heard a blood-curdling scream coming from the nearby cornfield. Two days later, Kristen's body was found in that cornfield adjacent to the road she'd walked. Her throat had been slashed. In the more than 37 years since, there have been no arrests, and her family needs answers. In today's episode, we're taking a road trip to Ovid, New York. It's time to take a closer look at what happened to Kristen O'Connell on August 14th, 1985. Let's dive in. It was a good old boys network up there. And they took care of themselves and they took care of anybody else that got in their way. And that's the way it was in that area. It's hard to go into because it's 37 years, 37 years of of investigating, of finding out what really was happening in the area. The kind of, there's so many seedy criminal people in that area. 37 years is an awfully long time for a killer to be walking amongst us, for a mother to wake up another day not knowing. 37 years. It's nearly twice the amount of years that Kristen was even on this earth. Anyone born in 1985 is old enough to qualify as a United States presidential candidate. The benefit of hindsight, though, is now a lot more is known. Technology is far more advanced, and the clock is ticking. Before we hop in the car and head to Ovid, New York, it's time to introduce you to one of the private investigators working Kristen's case. I'm Noel Hotchkiss, and the way I got involved was that I was, uh, well, a couple of things, I guess, in my past. I was a military intelligence officer, combat intelligence officer. So I kind of like puzzles, and it's the same type of thing if you're going to try to predict what the enemy will do in the next three hours, 12 hours, so forth, 24 hours. It's very similar to trying to gather the information and process that information into intelligence to figure out what may have happened in the past such as with a murder. So I have that in my background. And I guess what really prompted me into this case was that I was the high school principal at Jordan Elbridge High School, which is in the western suburbs of Syracuse. And in the early 1980s, we had a student that was murdered. 18-year-old Julie Monson had gone missing from Auburn, New York, on September 27, 1981. Her skeletal remains were discovered in April 1983. In March of 86, Thomas Bianco, a former boyfriend of Julie's, was found guilty of her murder and sentenced to 25 years to life. But it wasn't quite that open and shut. In 1992, Bianco's conviction was overturned after numerous appeals. A Broome County judge found that prosecutors had withheld information and evidence. Thomas Bianco was now a free man, and Julie's murder is still unsolved. So in comes Noel Hotchkiss. Noel is a character, 
and I can tell right away that I like him. He's sharp as a tack, can talk your ear off for hours, and has no fear. Phyllis O'Connell has asked that I speak with him. Our first conversation together is brief, but then we schedule time to go more in depth, and that conversation lasts for more than four hours. Since I started researching Kristen's case six months ago, I'm trying to absorb all of the knowledge that Noel and others have gained over the past couple decades. I've got my work cut out for me. I was looking for the murder of my student. I was looking for the murder of Julie Monson, and I ran across the O'Connell case in Ovid. The Julie Monson murder, Noel's investigation into that, and how it led him to Kristen O'Connell could fit into another series. Noel began working with Phyllis O'Connell around 2007. And since then, he's interviewed over 100 people, witnesses, persons of interest from Kristen's case. Noel sort of jokes that the people of Ovid know him all too well. They see him and his white hair coming from a mile away. There's a scene in Oliver Stone's 1991 film, JFK, where Kevin Costner, playing the role of Louisiana DA Jim Garrison, has been investigating the assassination of the president and along the way receives anonymous threats. I love this film, despite it being tagged the biggest lie Hollywood ever told. My favorite scene is when Donald Sutherland's character, known only as X, arranges a face-to-face meeting with Jim Garrison. X is dressed in a black suit and black hat, adding to his anonymity and mystique. But he's there to cheer Garrison on and tell him to keep going. He tells him, quote, you're close. I like to imagine Noel Hotchkiss sitting down at a table in the Ovid McDonald's, only to be approached by an anonymous person in black, telling Noel to keep going. One recurring theme in Kristen's case is witnesses coming forward saying, my sibling was there that night. I know someone who saw something. I know a guy that was there and he's too afraid to speak up. And even I overheard someone talking about what to do with a body. If you know something, say something. So let's do this. We're off to Ovid, New York. I want to see this town with my own eyes. It's January, just a few days after what would have been Kristen's 58th birthday. Seven miles away from Ovid, New York, lays the final resting place of Rod Serling, the official tour guide of the Twilight Zone. He passed away in 1975. Interesting trivia, but also kind of fitting. There's something about Ovid. The village is tiny. According to census data, there were about 665 residents living there in 1985, the year that Kristen O'Connell visited. If you look at the Wikipedia entry for that time, the number is 666. Today, there are even fewer residents in the area that's less than half a mile square. If you happened upon the village, You may think it quaint, a little working-class farming town with a handful of shops and restaurants. Ovid is located 255 miles away from New York City and couldn't be more different. It's essentially the middle of nowhere. 
Back in 1985, shortly after Kristen's murder made headlines, Ovid's fire chief, Robert Favreau, said, quote, Things like this are not supposed to happen around here. That's sort of the true crime cliche, right? People didn't lock their doors. It could never happen in a town like this. The reality is, it can, it does, it did. I interviewed a few Ovid residents while working on Kristen's story. They not only live in Ovid now, they lived there in 1985 and remember all too well what the climate of the village was at that time. They didn't want to be recorded for this podcast or have their names mentioned, so they'll remain anonymous. It was a busy area in the summers, tourists vacationing near the Finger Lakes or visiting the local wineries. The older residents of the area, the snowbirds, would return from Florida and stay in Ovid for the spring and summer months. And back then, it was considered a thriving little area. The Army Depot in Seneca County and the nearby Willard Asylum employed a lot of people. Today, the asylum is abandoned, and the depot is now the setting for a prison, a one-time home for David Sweat, the inmate who escaped Danamora in 2015. Ovid was originally described to me as a place that nobody really goes, more they happen upon it, on their way to a better place. I grew up in a tiny rural town with literally one school, zero traffic lights, and no police patrolling on weekends. But even I was surprised at how small Ovid is. It's located in Seneca County in the Finger Lakes region, which consists of 11 lakes, each with their own unique traits, whether it's hiking, swimming, fishing, camping, or boating, Visitors and residents can find it. Some are peaceful and undeveloped lakes, while others are sprinkled with cottages and little shops. The area is known for its wineries, breweries, and distilleries. Picture a bed and breakfast overlooking a hillside and greenery, the occasional waterfall. You'll see words like charming, historic, antique, picturesque, and eclectic, while reading about the towns located in the Finger Lakes region, not to mention the academic aspects, with Ivy League School, Cornell University, just right down the road in Ithaca. But it's not all grapes, academia, and bunny rabbits. A little over 100 miles to the west, in the Buffalo area, there was a cocaine investigation, cleverly named Operation Snowflake, in the early to mid-80s, where 1.5 million in drug loot was seized by authorities. Arrests took place on November 29, 1985, after investigators uncovered that 15 traffickers had been buying cocaine in Florida and peddling it up to New York. While Ovid residents do say it was a nice place to grow up, there are also residents who told me there's a lot of corruption in Seneca County, and that corruption trickles down all the way down to the state of Florida. In the early 80s, farmers in the Finger Lakes region were approached by a family-owned winery, the Taylor Wine Company, which had been in operation for 90 years. Long story short, Taylor Wine suggested farmers use their land in New York State to grow grapes. Taylor Wine would buy the grapes. Everyone would be happy. The farmers agreed, and it was all set up. But at the last minute, 
Taylor Wine, backed out. What were these New York farmers going to do with all of these grapes without a winery to sell to? They were going to lose their farm, their land. Here, Phyllis O'Connell explains what investigators have uncovered about this time. They decided that they would grow marijuana in between the grapevines. And that was their second crop. So they all were involved in, at that point, you know, now, of course, it's legalized in New York, but at that time it wasn't. So this was an illegal operation. And almost all of these people that had these farms up there were involved in it. So they've all been kind of involved in illegal activities, and, and, and this was going on for some time. So we would find out through interviews from people that they would take a lot of these drugs and marijuana and ship it out and sell it and bring back cocaine. And so a failing business would become a profitable one. As, like the findings in Operation Snowflake, Drug mules would travel down to southern Florida, sell the marijuana in exchange for cocaine, which was then brought back up for distribution. The drug chain ran from central New York to Buffalo, and it still does. Young adults could earn $1,000 for making a run in the mid-'80s. Sanibel and Captiva, if you remember from the previous episode, are two islands off the coast of Fort Myers, Florida. Boats could easily come into port Cocaine dropped off, and from there, distribution. The question is, when Kristen was visiting Captiva Island in March of 1985, did she unknowingly and unwillingly come in contact with one or more drug mules? Did Kristen, with her optimism and Midwest innocence, stumble upon something and have to be silenced? That's one of several questions we'll continue to revisit throughout the series. The plan during my day here in Ovid is to meet up with JoLynn Rice. She's an advocate and the founder of Cold Case Advocacy. You'll hear from her more in this series, and about all the work she's doing to help families of homicide victims navigate dealings with law enforcement, the courts, and to ultimately get justice. I'm also meeting with Noel Hotchkiss, who knows the case better than anyone. My mission is not to knock on doors or kick up any dirt, but more to be a silent observer. After a long drive, a couple of stops for coffee and lunch, cities and suburbs left far behind in my rear view. I'm definitely out in the country. I turn onto a road toward Route 96 in Ovid, heading toward our meeting spot, McDonald's. The first thing I see right ahead is a horse-drawn buggy in the roadway. There are a lot of Amish in the area. I take it as a good sign. Kristen loved horses. Moments later, I pull into the parking lot and call Noel to let him know I'm here. It's 2 p.m. He's a few minutes away, so I go inside and meet JoLynn and her husband, Eric. Eric used to live in Ovid, and he and JoLynn have a lot of knowledge of the area, though Eric was a child when Kristen was murdered. 
I've only ever talked with Jolyn over the phone and in tons of emails, but we sort of click instantly. She's been a huge help and partner in putting Kristen's story together. A few minutes later, Noel arrives. He's in his 80s, but don't underestimate him. He can fire off facts about Kristen's case without referring to his single note. He keeps in regular contact with her family, providing updates and checking in. He also has this earnestness about him and this glint in his eye where he always seems to be smiling. It's hard to imagine him angry. You're ready to take the tour, he asks me. I hop into the passenger seat of his car and we're off. It's honestly a bit surreal. This small community I've heard so much about is even smaller than I imagined. Our first stop is just seconds away the Golden Buck on Seneca Street. The parking lot is empty, but leaning against the front porch is a shovel and a bucket of salt left from a recent snow. The building itself is homey, beige with green trim and a green sign out front that says, The Golden Buck Restaurant, Great Food, Legal Beverages. In the 80s, at least for the locals, the Golden Buck was the place to go for the more well-to-do residents, the sort of neighborhood haunt where everyone would gather for lunch or happy hour and drinks with friends. Kristen had gone there that Wednesday, August 14th, to call her mom and was shocked to see the bartender from Captiva was working there. It's the same bartender that hit the kid on the bike. Now, you know, a theory was, is obviously... Could this person lure her up there? Because she and Sue were the only ones that knew he had the kid on the bike. And yet we can't find any true identification of anybody hit on a bike, you know, in that surrounding area during that time period. But but who knows, you know, it may not have been reported or whatever. So when she was up in Ovid, the one thing she did say to me, hey, mom, you know, this is the first night she called. She said, you know, remember that bartender that hit the kid on the bike? Here he's bartending up here in Ovid, New York, at the Golden Buck. I said, really? Yeah. So she was amazed that the guy was up there. So I don't know. You know, you can start piecing here and piecing there. And, you know, you're surmising a lot. You know, we don't have any concrete facts that somebody said he did it. We don't, you know, or did they lure her up there? Or did they, or was this all coincidental? I'm not sure, you know. I'm not sure after 37 years what to think. And, you know, all we know is that everything we've uncovered, there was so much going on, so many bad people. You know, it just goes on and on. And all of the illegal activities they're all involved in. The bartender, 30-something-year-old Larry Kenyon, may have never made an impression on Kristen had it not been for the incident on spring break. Kristen's shock indicates She had no reason to believe that Larry was from Ovid or that he knew Jim. Any official record of this hit-and-run incident hasn't been found. 
But there are newspaper articles from down in Fort Myers during that week in 1985 that show two hit-and-run incidents. In one, the driver had fled the scene of the accident, leaving his vehicle behind. The police traced the car and identified the driver, but it was not Larry Kenyon. The second hit-and-run occurred on Thursday, March 21st at 7.30 p.m. A man named Carl John Shea of Naples was struck by several cars walking along I-75 after his car had broken down near an overpass in Fort Myers. This accident lines up with the timeline, but this was not a kid on a bike. As Phyllis said, is it possible that Larry's hit and run was never reported or that it was somehow covered up? The Golden Buck is closed this afternoon, so we won't be stopping in. Not that we'd be very welcome anyway. There's a photo floating around online that was taken from inside the buck. It's a picture of a chalkboard sign, and on it says, Welcome to the Golden Buck. Nutsy's rules. Anyone who talks about the O'Connell murder will be asked to leave. No press allowed. No exceptions. Nutsy is Nutsy Chamberlain, the owner of the buck. Either way, I'm not about to get tossed out of a bar in Ovid, New York, or watch my companion Noel get thrown out. Right next to the buck is the trailer, also owned by Nutsy and rented out to Jim Vermeersh in August 1985. He'd only been renting a short time before Kristen visited. Now I'm parked in front of it. Jim is long gone. Word is that he now resides in Tennessee. And the trailer hasn't been frozen in time like the rest of the town. It's been updated. This is the place where Kristen woke up on August 14th, 1985, completely unaware that it would be her last morning. Days after Kristen's murder, next to a black and white photo of Madonna and Sean Penn with a headline that said, The Material Girl Marries, is another headline, A Walk Ended in Death. Kristen's murder had made national and international headlines. Her beauty was compared to that of Brooke Shields. Nobody could believe that anyone would want to harm Kristen. They asked the question, how could there be such a violent, brutal murder in this tiny town where nobody locked their doors? Behind an unlocked trailer door, right here on Seneca Street, was a group of young adults drinking and partying on the night of August 14th. Kristen wasn't a square, but the party lifestyle was definitely not her. Friends and family say she'd likely feel pretty uncomfortable in an environment like that, particularly if drugs were involved. When Kristen went missing, the kids from the trailer were interviewed, asked if they'd been doing drugs. They said no. In subsequent interviews, one of those kids admitted that they'd been smoking pot, but they hadn't indulged until after Kristen had left for her walk. They'd kept that detail from the police so as not to get in trouble. Just hours before Kristen's murder, Jim had reportedly left to get pizza from Buster's around 11, 11.30. Residents have told me that they have doubts about that as Buster's wouldn't have been open that late on a weeknight back in 85. 
When Jim returned to the trailer, he was told by his friends that Kristen had left to take a walk and, quote, clear her head. Later, when Phyllis O'Connell asked Jim why he let Kristen go for a walk alone, he said that she'd taken a walk the night before, too, and so it didn't seem strange. But nobody bothered to call the police when she didn't come back. Surely these kids, the elite of the town whose parents frequent the Golden Buck, wouldn't go to bed without ensuring their out-of-town friend was safe. All the more puzzling is a comment Jim's father, Jim Sr., made to reporters early on in the investigation. He said he hadn't heard of Kristen. He didn't even know how his son had met her. One of the first questions I had when becoming acquainted with Kristen's case was, why was she walking alone at 11.30 barefoot? I guess when you're looking back at it, knowing how that walk ended, it can spark skepticism. Was she trying to escape something, or was she forced to somehow take a walk? That witness, Ed McDonald, who saw Kristen as he was driving home from work, told law enforcement back then, quote, We came up the hill and saw her walking along the road. I thought it was funny that she would be walking out of town alone. I saw a car driving right next to her, going slow, like the person in it was talking to her or something. She didn't seem alarmed. There was another car going slow, right behind the first car. Here, Kristen's friend Shannon talks about the walk. She loved to walk at night, you know, hence when she was in New York, you know, a lot of the other, uh, or I should say a couple other websites that I'm on for her, you know, there's so many people speculating, why was she walking? She had to have been forced, you know, who would do, Kristen would do that. She loved walking at night. She was not afraid to walk alone at night anywhere. She would walk and she would just Take in the beauty of everything. When I set out to walk the same route Kristen did, I start on the road in front of the trailer and walk down Route 139. There isn't much of a shoulder and there's no sidewalk. It takes me about five minutes with shoes on to walk this particular stretch of road. While I'm walking, three cars pass by It's a Saturday afternoon, so it's not a heavily trafficked road, and I've been told it's one you'd only travel if you knew the area. Some witnesses said they saw Kristen head back, right in the opposite direction. Around this curve here, Noel Hotchkiss believes there's a reason for this. Around this spot is when the intersection of 139 and 96 can be seen. A burger joint sat at that intersection in 1985, and Kristen may have been hoping to use their phone, but the place was dark. I spend a few minutes looking out into the field where Kristen was found. There's no corn anymore, a couple of barns, a couple of silos, but otherwise just grass and a little bit of snow. I can't shake this eerie feeling. It's in the air and doesn't feel like the same kind of terror you have watching a horror movie. This is a genuine uneasiness. 
I reflect on a visit Phyllis O'Connell made to Ovid in 1995. Here is a clip from an interview she did back then. I did take that walk. And this time, it was even more intense. Um, What I felt was just a horrible feeling come over my whole body. It just started trembling. And then I heard a voice, oh God, mom, no. Oh God, mom, no. Sometime around midnight, on that date in 1985, witnesses recalled hearing a scream coming from the area of this very cornfield. Back in the car, Noel pulls up to our next stop, behind the cornfield. It's a house that he says was built around the George Washington administration. It's a white federal-style house with pillars and a small white picket fence out front. Noel believes that Kristen may have come across this very house while trying to escape her killer. This had a light on at the porch and maybe even one inside. But it was a museum at the time, but Kristen wouldn't have known it. The caretaker of this museum found blood on the front porch and the front steps. Okay. Okay? Mm -hmm. And he called the the, uh, sheriff's department. The sheriff's department told the caretaker to wash the blood off the steps. At the time, nobody knew a murder had just taken place and the assumption was it must have been from an injured animal. She evidently was bleeding and probably ran and thought there was somebody living at that house, and there wasn't. See the golden box? See the trailer? Here, Noel is pointing out that this former museum is just a stone's throw from the golden buck and the trailer. Traffic along that road, and they grabbed her probably off the front steps. She, I think she got away from her and ran to those front steps and they grabbed her and I think they threw her on the back of a pickup truck. Guys in the back. It came across that road and now across here on the carriage. We drive further down this country road and Noel stops in front of another house where a family was living in 1985 a married couple, and their young daughter. Mom and her daughter were up late that Wednesday night when Kristen took her walk. They were preparing for a beauty pageant for the Interlaken Home Days, scheduled for later that week. Due to the heat and humidity, all of their windows were open. It was about, uh, she said, between quarter of one and one o'clock. She didn't look at the clock but she knows about what time it was. Her husband got fed up and went to bed because he had to go to work the next day. So he was asleep, but the girl and the mother were in that kitchen with the door open. It was like 90 degrees at midnight. They heard screams. This barn wasn't there then, but the, the tree line was less open than it seems to us now. That's where they were. They heard the screams, they were blood-curdling screams, and 
she went upstairs to get her husband and left the girl in the kitchen to listen. The girl heard no more screams. The husband came downstairs and they were saying that they heard these screams and he says, you probably, there's a pond up there quite a ways. Probably it's a party spot, you know, for teenagers. So they were probably hearing the ruckus from that. And the daughters said to the father, no, somebody was in trouble. I think somebody was hurt. The screams stopped, but Noel says the next thing the family hears is what sounds like a truck, recognizable by the sound of its lower gears coming quickly down a nearby farmer's road. They didn't see any headlights, but they would have if they'd been on. And then the truck turns and takes off down Wilson Road, headed east. Noel now takes me to a location that used to be the Hilltop Bar. If the Golden Buck was for the Ovid elite, then the Hilltop was for the rougher crowd, so I'm told. Even for a tiny town, there's a class division. The Hilltop Bar is no more. The building isn't even there, but a witness, a man named Bob, who's now deceased, told law enforcement and private investigators that he saw something late that Wednesday into Thursday morning. Bob was asleep in his vehicle when someone pulled into the lot of the hilltop, parked, and threw something in the field. Then they notice he's in his truck. They come over and wake him up about five o'clock in the morning. And they said to him, you saw someone go across there and throw a knife in the field, didn't you? He says, I didn't know it was a knife, it's pitch dark, but I saw somebody go across there and throw something. Yes. Well, if you tell anyone, you die. A few hours later, Bob saw something else in that parking lot. And he saw about eight or nine o'clock in the morning, a carpet rolled up and it looked like it had a body and it you know, had some weight, something was wrapped in it. And they put it in this van van and drove it down 139 to the area of the cornfield. I guess he followed them at a distance. Bob kept talking about a band that always played here at the hilltop. So the band's van was the vehicle used. Now, this guy, Bob, was sort of an eccentric type, but Noel says super smart. He'd sit in a public place alone and just listen to everything. And he heard a lot. The police have dismissed Bob's witness account. His story comes to an end years later when he's dying in a nursing home. A local woman with loyalty to Kristen's mom visited Bob. She, in fact, even went to see him about a day before he died in a nursing home and said, you can tell me now. The mother needs to know what the truth is. And uh, he says, but they threatened to kill my daughters. So I can't tell, I would tell you, but they threatened to kill my daughters. Bob's witness account, if correct, could indicate that Kristen wasn't left in the cornfield that night. Our next stop contains a detail that could also indicate Kristen wasn't killed in the cornfield. 
At this house, Noel keeps a bit of a distance. We're about a block from the trailer now. In 2018, a woman inherited this house, and while cleaning out the second floor, thought she may have discovered something. There was a stain on the hardwood, and it looked an awful lot like blood. Remembering that a young woman had been murdered in town, she contacted the state police, who in turn didn't do anything. Another resident in town paid to have the floorboards removed and then had the state police come, get them, and have them tested. They came back saying that it wasn't blood, but they also refused to provide their findings or return the floorboards. On Thursday, while Kristen was still considered missing, Jim was questioned, asked why he didn't take her with him when he went to pick up the pizza, because he'd taken his motorcycle, Jim had responded. And why had he waited 13 hours to report Kristen missing? He said he'd been drinking and smoking pot and that he went to bed. It wasn't until after he woke up that his head was clear enough. But there are still lingering questions about whether the police were called out to the trailer for a missing person or because one of the kids there had had his car stolen and taken for a joyride the day before. The kids were all questioned while Kristen was missing, but reportedly not pressed hard after her murder. In fact, by August 18th, the state police publicly exonerated Jim Vermeersh and told journalists, quote, he was discounted almost immediately. Now, in any investigation, you rely on an officer to use their best judgment. From anticipating their next move and keeping themselves or others safe, to knowing when a conflict of interest may prevent them from making the best choices. The Golden Buck had a regular customer back then named Dick Chapin, Detective Dick Chapin. He was the lead detective at the beginning of the investigation and was friendly with many of the Ovid residents, including some of the parents of the kids Kristen had been hanging out with. Just days into the investigation, Detective Chapin publicly declared that the killer didn't live in Ovid. I asked Phyllis O'Connell, did any of the kids that had met Kristen and Ovid, have any of them ever reached out to you? She said, except for Jim coming to Minnesota for the funeral, no. Other than that, these kids have never reached out, never. Other than when I was there on the anniversary date, I went over to the Golden Book and I met couple of the kids and I questioned them about what happened that night you know and uh, they of course told me what they supposedly knew which was a little conflicting in times and you know who who did what but the the one thing that's stuck in my mind was Annie Guinan and of course she was one of the kids that was there at that party supposedly and she had put her hand on my shoulder and said you know Mrs. O'Connell sometimes things just get out of hand 
you know, that 37 years later sits with me. And I cannot get rid of that statement because that's something you just don't say unless you really know something. And, you know, and that was the only response I got from these kids. I have never, they've never called me. I tried to reach Jim Vermeesh several times. He wouldn't take my call, you know, so I, I do not hear from them. And you would think, I mean, if that happened here, oh my God, we'd be all over wanting to see if we could do anything, if there was anything that we could help with, if there was, you know, talking to them and sending condolences, uh, you know, this this was not done. They're very strange people. I haven't been able to reach anyone from the trailer for comment, but reportedly, Ann Guinan denies ever having made that comment to Phyllis about things getting out of hand. Before we conclude, I'll leave you with this quote from JFK's ex. Make arrests, stir the shitstorm, hope to reach a point of critical mass that'll start a chain reaction of people coming forward. Then the government will crack. Remember, fundamentally, people are suckers for the truth, and the truth is on your side. I just hope you get a break. Coming up next on Method and Madness. If there were things going on that she overheard, she would not, she probably would have said something to Jim Vermeesh and said, you know, we need to call the police or, you know, we need to do something about this because she obviously would not want drug running going on or anything else that was, you know, not on the up and up. Ovid is now in my rearview mirror, but we'll go over a few other stops Noel had taken on my tour. My greatest takeaway from that weekend trip is people know who will be the one to do the right thing and come forward. Up next on this miniseries, we'll take a look at an FBI agent in Minnesota, a witness account of locals covered in blood, and a strange call made to 911 as someone flees Ovid. Here's today's call to action. Kristen's case can be solved. There's a petition online to get the DNA in Kristen's case tested. Please sign. If you have any information about Kristen's case and want to submit a tip, please do so by contacting Detective Peter McCadden of the New York State Police. Check the show notes for more details. You can also share this episode and Kristen's story on social media. There's power in numbers, and someone knows something. To get more information about Kristen's case, visit my friends at Uncovered.com and make sure to join the Facebook group Justice for Kristen O'Connell. A lot of people helped make this episode and miniseries possible. Thank you to Courtney Fenner, Jolyn Rice, Christopher Pavlik, Noel Hotchkiss, Preston Felton, the anonymous residents of Ovid, Barbara Bear, Shannon Harris, Phil Riedel, and of course, Phyllis O'Connell. Thank you for listening to this episode of Method and Madness. If you haven't already, 
please leave a rating or review, and don't forget to hit that subscribe button. To connect, I'm on Twitter at MethodPod and on Instagram at MethodAndMadnessPod. To chat, suggest a case, or discuss the episode, reach out to me at MethodAndMadnessPod at gmail.com. Method and Madness is researched, written, and hosted by me. It is sound edited by Mo and Spo. That's it for this week. Until next time, take care of yourself. For crisis support, text hello to 741-741.